a whole new generation of those types of people were just born this past year. And in future bull runs, they're going to be the ones that educate. I would like to think that people don't have to go through pain or know somebody who went through pain for that to, to educate themselves. And there are, they're just, they've got to find the right role models in the space. Welcome to the Swan Signal Podcast, a production of Swan Bitcoin. I'm your host, Brady Swenson. Swan Signal Live pairs great guests for compelling discussions about Bitcoin and economics. In this one, Preston Pish, analyst and podcaster, and Andy Edstrom, financial advisor and author of Why Buy Bitcoin, join us. Hey, Sats fans. Welcome back to Swan Signal Live. These are my favorite episodes of this podcast by far. Our quarter of the reports with Preston Pish and Andy Edstrom. We've been doing these for two years now. We check in at the end of every quarter, look back on things that happened and make some predictions about what's to come. And we're going to do the same this year. Uh, we're going to get to the show in just a moment. A quick announcement. Um, this is my this is my last uh, Swan Signal Live episode. This is my last podcast probably. And I've been doing this for about five years now. Uh, started with Citizen Bitcoin in, in 2018 um, and went basically through that whole year with like no listeners <laughs> at all, uh, but picked up steam in 2019 when I started interviewing some some uh, big name Bitcoiners. I finally had uh, grown the confidence to reach out to some of the big names in the space and ask them to come onto my podcast. Previously, I'd just been hanging out with a friend of mine and talking about Bitcoin, which was also great. And when that started in 2019, uh, things kind of took off, and uh, so did my sort of, uh, I guess, what began my Bitcoin career uh, at uh, Bitcoin 2019 in San Francisco, and uh, met a bunch of the people I'd been interviewing and uh, made tons of connections, including with uh, Corey Clipston, uh, who was uh, at the conference talking about Give Bitcoin, uh, his project to help gift Bitcoin and Bitcoin education uh, to people in an easy way. And uh, later that year, started working with Corey and Jan and, and team to, to build Give Bitcoin, which pretty quickly turned into Swan as we found that Bitcoiners were creating Give Bitcoin accounts to give Bitcoin to themselves using our uh, recurring gift feature. And so what we saw is that the plebs wanted uh, an easy Bitcoin-only DCA platform, and then Swan was born in March 2020. And right at the same time, we put uh, the product out at the end of March right when the COVID crash hit, uh, we also started Swan Signal Live. The first episode of this podcast happened in, uh, I think it was like March 29th, the day after the big crash. And uh, we were down and, you know, hit 3000s. And, and uh, it was, it was a, there was a bit of panic on Bitcoin Twitter. So we decided to go live uh, with a, a great group of Bitcoiners, about six of us, and just uh, uh, talk about what was happening and hopefully give some newer Bitcoiners uh, a little bit of confidence that, you know, this is uh, this is part of the ride, uh, the roller coaster ride that is Bitcoin, and things are going to be okay. Now is a great time to, to to stack some cheap sats, and let's just push forward and rely on that conviction. And that uh, just kind of off the cuff uh, show uh, just turned into to this podcast. Uh, it was kind of a novel in the space to invite uh, two Bitcoiners on at the same time and just go to kind of a rotating stable of guests, the best and biggest names in the space. Uh, you know, there's maybe been 30 different Bitcoiners on the show and Press and Andy have been on double digit times. And so that's the formula for this show. And I think it remains unique and, and a, a great format. 
And I'm really excited to be passing the baton for, for this show, for Swan Signal, over to my friend Sam Callahan, who I'll bring up here in just a minute. Uh, he did uh, actually guest host this uh, the, the Q3 quarterly report uh, with Preston and Andy. And he's been working on the show with me for uh, basically all year, helping me research and, and prep for the show. So he is ready to go uh, and take on this new project in uh, 2023. So let's bring in our guests, Preston and Andy, and I'll pop Sam in as well. He's behind the scenes. Hey, Sam. Yo. What's up, man? Hello. Yeah, man. I'm um, super honored to take the reins. And very surreal for me because I listened to you before I worked at Swan. And I learned a lot from you, man. And, and helping you on the show over the last year has been a privilege. And I still get to work with you, so I'll still see you around and everything. But... uh yeah, man, I have some big shoes to fill, but I'm super excited uh, to take over the reins and, and maintain the quality here that you started. So uh, very, very excited, man. So congratulations yeah. on everything. Seriously. Thanks, brother. Yeah, I'm excited to uh, watch what you're going to do and take this show to new heights. Sam is far more qualified than me to host these macro shows, especially uh, as you guys probably know from some of his work. And so I, I'm really excited uh for Sam to have this platform to uh, bring some more visibility to his great work. Uh, so Sam star will certainly continue to rise in 2023. <laughs> All right. Thanks buddy. Let's get into the show. Um, Andy Edstrom, you're looking fly, man. You're looking healthy. <laughs> this, is a, this is a really nice uh, kind of blue Bitcoiny shirt you got going on. How are you doing tonight? Oh man. Never, never better. Never better. Brady. Uh, I'm loving this bear market. I'm loving being with you guys. I'm loving my new bright orange shirt, which was a Christmas gift. And uh, <laughs> yeah, just uh, just happy to be here. We got a lot to talk about. Um, I'm sorry we found a uh, you know a, a smarter and better looking version of you to, to replace you, but you'll be uh, <laughs> you'll be forever missed. And I know that Citizen Bitcoin will ride again. We'll see what you uh, we'll see what you do next. Yeah, well, you know, I doubt I'm going to come out of retirement, but, you know, all of the, all you know, sometimes it happens. This seems to happen all the time. Uh, maybe I'll miss it. Maybe I'll reboot uh, Citizens Bitcoin, but I doubt it. Preston, how are you doing tonight, man? Doing great. Doing great. I don't have anything else to say. Other than I'm glad, yeah, I'm glad, glad you're here. Glad to see you. Uh, some prime time action here at the end of the year. It's been an absolutely insane year, as every year in Bitcoin is, but this one may be particularly insane. Uh in, in my five years here, uh, this has been uh, just an incredible dominoes of events starting from the beginning of the year, uh, culminating with this FTX collapse and uh, so much going on in the macro level as well. Uh, so I just let's start with this. Uh, you know, Andy, why don't you give me your maybe biggest kind of overriding story of the year in Bitcoin? I guess I'll go with the with the obvious. Well, maybe I'll t say two things. One is uh, TikTok next block. To quote you, Brady, uh, <laughs> Bitcoin lives on. Uh, these uh, edifices, you know, these uh, these uh, false structures that were riding the coattails of Bitcoin that were exposed this year. Uh, thanks to the plebs. Thanks to Corey. Thanks to uh, all those who uh, helped expose them. Um, have all 
uh, gone the way of the dodo, uh, or many of them have, and uh, yet Bitcoin continues. Um, so, you know, that's the main story, which is that the story continues on despite uh, the burning, uh, the burning of these structures around it. Um, and then the second, you know, biggest story is is obvious, but but maybe I'll uh, I'll pass it to uh, to Preston in case he uh, in case he disagrees with me. Well, what's the second biggest story? I mean, for me, it's, it's it's SBF. Yeah, there you go. It's Brady's retirement. <laughs> <laughs> it's Brady's swan song. Yeah. yeah, I mean, for me, for me, it's FTX and and SBF yeah. is uh, is the biggest story. But uh, there are other candidates for sure. Yeah, I th I think that uh, that's an obvious choice for sure. Preston, do you have a lesser obvious choice that uh, maybe had, you know at least will eventually have as big an impact as uh, this year's contagion that led to FTX's collapse. I would probably, I, no, I think that's what it is. I think that uh, we had unprecedented amounts of stimulus globally pumped into the system. So as they try to get that under control, uh, looking back at it, it's very easy in hindsight to, to kind of make these types of comments, but um, we could have expected a significant um contraction as they're trying to get some of this stuff under control and then when you look at the cesspool that was stood up around the the easy money that was just pumped into the the global economy everywhere um you got to expect really bad actors and and creatures to kind of emerge out of something like that so um did i see ftx blowing up in the way that it did no um did I find his interactions with certain political people and just the kind of the way he was doing business as being just not making sense? Yes. But um, I never thought that it was as uh, negligent as it was um, and as, as fraud based as it was between uh, FTX and Alameda and everything else that was happening. But yeah, in, in short, I would just say this year can be characterized as a dramatic contraction after a dramatic uh reflation and stimulus event that that preceded it and you were banging the drum about leverage in the system starting back in uh well a year ago at that show on the show one of your predictions was that we're going to see you know systemic leverage built up in the crypto system not only the crypto system but also the system more broadly that could lead to some you know big disasters in 2022 obviously that came to pass do you feel like enough leverage has been wiped out at this point or do you think there is more to come uh do you think that this kind of you know leverage trading is ever going to to slow down and last last part of this is um do you see it as a a long-term risk uh this kind of leverage and this this paper bitcoin being printed uh, what do you think about the risk for Bitcoin that this you know practice continues uh, moving forward? Yeah, so thanks, Brady. Uh, even I was surprised by the level of leverage in the system. <laughs> it was uh, <laughs> shocking and appalling. Uh, what what can you say? Um, it's uh, I guess part of it has to do with human nature. Uh, people can't help help themselves. Hubris is a is a real thing. Um, I guess part of it is playing with other people's money. You probably take more risk uh, with other people's money. At least certain people do take more risk with other people's money. Um, obviously, the Fed 
<laughs> was was not helpful in uh, limiting the leverage throughout the economy, including and especially in uh, Bitcoin and the crypto space. And so, yeah, I mean, it was um, I was surprised by the even by the level uh, of what occurred. I knew it was a problem, but I didn't know it was going to be this big of a problem. Um, with respect to your question about, you know, are we done basically? Is the deleveraging done? I guess it's kind of the same question as like, have we bottomed in price? And the answer is, you never know until uh, until you look at it in retrospect. Um, there are a couple candidates out there. Obviously, I mean, Tether's always out there. You know, uh, GBTC and Grayscale um, and DCG are out there. Uh, you got Silvergate Bank. I mean, there's there's still uh, obviously Binance. Um, there, there's all these entities that are risks. Um, I'm not especially worried about any one of them in particular, but I definitely can't say that all these risks are behind us. So I'm sort of cautiously optimistic, but uh, but nothing would surprise me. And then just real quick on your last question, you know, is, is paper Bitcoin a problem? Uh, you know, is leverage uh, is false false Bitcoin not real Bitcoin? Bitcoin that you thought you owned at FTX, but actually they didn't have any Bitcoin. Yeah, <laughs> it's a problem. <laughs> it's a problem. Um, you know, I think Preston's been talking about that issue uh, for a while. Um, others uh, for sure. Caitlin Long, um, and um, I don't know when uh, when we'll get past it. Your guess is as good as mine. Paper Bitcoin's a, an issue if you're too lazy to take physical custody. Right. Because <laughs> it couldn't be any easier. Um, relatively speaking, like when you look around, like, hey, if you own Apple stock and you want to take physical custody of those stock certificates so somebody's not rehypothecating them on an exchange, yeah. uh, that's pretty hard to do. It's pretty hard to do. There's not like an easy solution where you can just like take Apple tokens and put them on your phone and like nobody can rehypothecate those certificates. So... I just find uh, our paper Bitcoin is going to continue to be something that people try to pull on uh, unsophisticated retailers around the world. Of course, uh, you're going to continue to see it. But where this is different um, is if you do a little bit of homework and it doesn't require a whole lot of homework, it's pretty darn easy to take physical custody of your Bitcoin uh, relative to everything else on the planet that can retain buying power like Bitcoin can. So um, I would just that's the thing that makes this different. And that's why this is so important for people to wrap their head around taking physical custody, because if you understand it, you can sleep well at night. You really can. Um, so. You know, one one little piece of hope I have is that events like this can be used as well, direct teaching tools to people to take custody of their Bitcoin. Uh, but also in the future, we can say, hey, do you remember this? Do you remember hearing about this where people lost billions and billions of dollars in 2022? Yeah, well, here's how you can avoid it, right? And I've actually seen actually a, a couple of crypto shows. Uh, don't ask me why I was watching crypto shows, but I, I saw a couple and they were actually talking about self-custody. You know, they're, you know, it was like, okay, well, that's good. Like, he, preach that, right, during the bull markets, you know, when everyone's frothing at the mouth. Tell people, hey take custody of your stuff. Um, but you know, they're probably just want to leave it on exchange anyway, because they're not going to hold it for very long. Um, that, that does happen. That's going to continue to happen. I was very bullish to see massive historic outflows of Bitcoin from exchanges in the wake of this though. Um, 
we have a couple questions from the chat. I think this might be a good one to throw in there now. Um, so how do we get the younger demographic, younger people to adopt Bitcoin and educate them on how to avoid exchanges? I mean, you know, yeah. <laughs> watching these things happen and then using this tool would be my answer. But if either of you've got a, another idea here, that'd be great. So Payne's a great teacher. Yeah. Um, and there's been a ton of pain in the last year. And uh, just because you didn't experience the pain doesn't mean that the friend that you have who did experience the pain doesn't tell about their scar tissue to their friends. And so when I look at the FTX blow up, it was it, it's horrific for the people that had to go through it. But a little bit of the blessing there is that they are going to be talking to their friends on the next bull run. They're going to say, oh, yeah, I had all these FTT tokens. I had whatever. And it, I got slaughtered. Yeah. I didn't understand this core thing. I know when I came into the space, uh, the uh, Mount Gox had just happened. And it was jammed down my throat as a, as a person who was just starting to interact with this community not your keys, not your coins, take physical custody. Uh, uh, Caitlin Long's a perfect example. She talks about it all the time, uh, about her experience of, of losing a, a few Bitcoin on Mt. Gox and how, so it was like people like that uh, are the ones that a whole new generation of those types of people were just born this past year. Yep. And uh, in future bull runs, they're going to be the ones that educate and you know, I, I would like to think that people don't have to go through pain or know somebody who went through pain for that to, to, to educate themselves. And there are, they're just, they've got to find the right role models in the space. And a lot of the times people are looking for somebody that they can harmonize with from a personality standpoint that they trust that represents their core, yep. core being, and they're aligning it with people that they're looking at in the community that align with that. And so they're getting that guidance that, that's really kind of the only way that I think a person can kind of avoid uh, or, or basically learn those lessons without feeling the pain is, is they've got the right people that they're following. Agreed. Anything to add, Andy? No, I mean, not, not much. Pain is the best teacher. I do wish we had, we could somehow gather statistics on in each cycle, you know, how many people learned about and got their coins into cold storage you know, without, without losing any, um, I suppose there's some percentage. I wish I knew what the percentage was. My guess is that, yeah, is that most people as Preston suggests, uh, learn the hard way. And, mm -hmm. uh, that's just the, the way of the world. I learned about the pain of leverage and the risk of leverage the hard way as well. And, uh, you know, I wish I'd been smart enough to, to dodge that, uh, that bullet earlier in my investment career, but I wasn't. So, I don't know why I assume anyone else will be. Uh, nevertheless, uh, we we try to educate people and hope that we pick off a few of them and, and save them some pain. Agreed. That's uh, definitely one of our core missions here at Swan. It's uh, let, you know, take take your Bitcoin off Swan. Okay, we make it free and and easy. We can you can even automate it, but hold your own keys, please. I saw. Um, was in an argument with somebody and they were they they brought this up I, I don't remember who it was or what the exchange was i just remember uh somebody saying well you have an exchange Corey. why don't you yeah. you know and Corey just fired back i am telling you right now take your bitcoin on <laughs> get them off of we don't want to hold your bitcoin for you you should hold it you should hold it for yourself uh let's let's talk for a second about japan uh it's been in the news this week 
um, kind of shocked the investment world uh, when it loosened its bond yield cap uh, from a quarter point to a half point. And now, uh, less than a week later, they're uh, announcing a, an unscheduled <laughs> bond buying program for their shorter term bonds. Um, so what do you think, uh, let's start with press on this one. What do you think uh, made the BOJ raise its yield curve control cap like now? What happened? Uh, I think when you look at the rest of their duration of their curve, I mean, it was selling off. It's it's going and it's uh, selling off. It has higher yields. And then when you look at their tenure where they had the yield curve control implemented, it was completely out of whack with the rest of their curve. And anybody who understands how banks work, you can't have inverted yield curves for too long until things really start getting dicey for for the way that they're managing the risk on their balance sheets. So um, I would just I think James did a great job. I recently had an interview with James Lavish and he he kind of quantified uh, Japan as kind of the weakest chain uh, in or the, the weakest link in the chain for global interest rates. Um, so when you're when you're thinking about global interest rates and you're thinking about how the swaps between various currencies work. Um, the lowest yield relative to the, the inflation rate of that local currency um, is going to be where everybody tries to denominate their debts. And so when we look at uh, Japan, the, the situation here is demonstrating the fact that they had to adjust the yield curve control up to 50 bips on the 10-year, and, and it used to be at 25, uh, 25 bips, um, tells, tells us as a global economy that the, the, the cheap money is going away, that we're in a new paradigm. Um, now, whether it stays there or not, or whether they're able to defend that 50 basis point uh, yield that they're at right now, uh, that's yet to be determined. Um, but in general, I think the theme for people as they're looking at this is the, the global cheap negative nominal interest rate uh, environment that, that the world had become accustomed to over decades um, I think it's over, and I think that the trend is is definitely moving in a different direction over the the coming five to ten years. So, Andy, I mean, is this is this a big deal? Um, have you like what are some of the impacts on bond yields maybe that we would see in the U.S. and Europe and risk assets uh, from this move? Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with everything Preston said. You know, one thing I would add maybe as to why why now with japan i mean the the yen has gotten absolutely murdered this year yes. and and japan does have to ex, uh, import certain things um they they export a lot of you know value added and, and manufactured goods but they don't have a lot of energy and uh, with energy in short supply globally you have to have a currency that can buy barrels of oil um and natural gas uh for that matter they're a big uh, big lng importer um they just don't have the energy resources or other you know physical natural resources for that matter so i think if you're uh running things in japan you're realizing that there are major strategic energy and other materials based needs that you face as a country and so you can't just let the currency go completely I mean, you may ultimately be forced to uh, to essentially let it go, but at least you're going to keep fighting the good fight while you still can. And so I guess part of me would, would argue that 
it's actually a surprise that it sort of took them this long to uh, to defend their their currency, you know, to the extent that they that they finally have done here toward year end. But um, but yeah, the the Fed led and raised rates, and that really put the squeeze on uh, all foreign central banks, uh, including and especially Japan's. Well, and the other thing that you get with the with the currency going down the way that it was going down is you actually incentivize the rest of the world to start buying products and services from your from your country. So, uh, you know, it, it's it's a little bit of for the people in Japan, it's a little bit like if you ask a fish what water feels like, they're not really going to be able to tell you because they're just in it. And I think for people in their local currency, um, you know, it can be getting debased very heavily. They don't necessarily really kind of realize it because they're maybe not buying a bunch of things from other parts of the world. But for the large country or for the large companies that are doing international business, what they're finding is that their revenues are going up despite the the loss and buying power that they have on the international stage. So um, I think that's probably to Andy's point why maybe they've allowed it to run uh, in, in a in a debasement kind of way relative to other fiat currencies, why they've let it run so long, but it's, it's getting to the point where uh, it's getting a little uh, messy on the global stage uh, because their rates are just so incredibly low relative to everywhere else. All right, let's move over to housing. Um, so one of the things we've seen this quarter is housing starts start to roll over. And we just saw pending home sales tumbled 4% month over month. Um, Case-Shiller Home Price Index came out Tuesday, showed another month, uh, four months in a row now of declines. Uh, so do you guys see these trends continuing? Is this uh, sort of harbinger for um, a tech technical or definitional recession or deeper recession uh, rea in reality uh, for next year? So yeah, let's, let's, hear, the, let's hear the comments on thoughts on housing in particular, and then let's roll that into prospects for a, a broader recession next year. Uh, Andy, we'll kick this one to you. Sure. So I had uh, lunch yesterday with uh, my friend Rich Katz, who's a great LA uh, local LA Bitcoiner, and uh, he's a big real estate investor. Um, and I'm in his, his camp, which is, yeah, more, more pain ahead. Um, real estate kind of lags. I mean, it takes a while for higher interest rates and higher mortgage rates to work their way through the system. Uh, if you don't have to sell your house, you just wait as long as you can. Uh, so you don't take that markdown, take that loss, especially since uh, in a lot of cases, leaving your current house and moving to a new one means you got to put in place a new mortgage that ha may have a much, much higher rate than the one you've got right now. So yeah, I don't know if, I want to say, you know, roughly speaking, prices are down, I don't know, maybe 10% or something so far. I think that continues. I don't think we're going to get something massive like we did in the in the housing crisis and the global financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. Don't quote me. I want to say housing went down like 30%. So I don't really expect expect that kind of an outcome, but somewhere somewhere in between, somewhere farther than we've gone so far. Uh, but not as bad probably as the as the global financial crisis. Um, that's kind of my take. I'll pass it to Preston. I, I think it has to do with how long the rates stay where they're at, which comes down to how long is inflation going to be continuing to pump out the prints that we've been getting. Um, because if you keep letting this inflation uh, or the, the inflation and the interest rates run this hot relative to where they were, 
um, you're just you're getting deep illiquidity in the in the housing market and any type of real estate market. Um, definitely over in the in the EU, uh, they've just have the the spreads there are so negative and just so disgustingly bad for somebody who's trying to offload something that that doesn't have any type of liquidity to it, which is real estate. Um, when you're looking at a typical business cycle, what you have first is, is housing is the, is the thing that starts kind of manifesting itself. Then you get into the purchase orders for businesses. They start to see a slowdown in that. Um, next you would see profits of the business start to decline. Uh, and then lastly, I think you would start to see unemployment as kind of like the pecking order of how this, how this plays out. When we look at the unemployment numbers right now. They're the best we've had in, in decades, um, which is typically characteristic of the top. We've already seen uh, equity sell off for an entire year um, at this point. Uh, and we're still having unemployment, the best unemployment numbers that we've seen. Now, in, in the last 20 years, when I look at those metrics and like how they line up, typically, uh, when you're, when you're getting your best unemployment is when you are hitting the peak in the equity markets. So that we've had, so since we've had an equity sell off here already, it's kind of interesting uh, when we look at what's still to come. Um, and I think maybe the reason you saw that proceed it by so much, the equity sell off relative to the unemployment numbers is because we had such a reversal in negative interest rate spread uh, between inflation and what you're getting on call it the 10 year treasury, it happens so abruptly and it's such a magnitude that I think the equity markets and any type of equity based valuation just immediately saw, uh, this hat there, there's something drastically wrong. These prices are, are wrong and they had to correct themselves. So that, that would be my argument for why that happened. Um, so do I think a long, 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 uh, introduction to the question, but um, I definitely think that you are in for more pain coming in uh, the, the coming year, at least for the first half of it. Um, they're going to have to add more monetary units into the system at some point when they really start to to break things. Um, I kind of suspect that that's happening here in, in the coming two quarters, that they're going to they're going to really break something bad um, the first half of, of the new year. Uh, and. You know, if they if they add a bunch of monetary units into the system, that has to flow into. I would I would think that it's going to have to flow into first of all all the areas where you had impairment, um, and it really depends on where they're where they're funneling all that liquidity. Whether they're doing something similar to like what we saw in 2020 uh, with COVID, where it was going directly into the pockets of of citizens via checks, or whether they're doing it with QE. My opinion is that they're going to be doing a, a mix of both. And, uh, and then what pops out of that, it really depends on how much magnitude they do. So I think there's more pain in, in store for the markets. I think that when you look at the markets relative to Bitcoin, I think Bitcoin's going to outperform from this point forward. It's going to outperform the S and P 500, the NASDAQ, uh, not by a lot, but maybe a little bit. And so like, if you were going to denominate the S and P 500 or denominate the NASDAQ in Bitcoin instead of dollars, I think that that's uh, a chart that you would see uh, going down uh, if, if the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ was in the numerator. So you think it's unemployment will be one of the, the main drivers of a, of a Fed pivot? Like once we see that really skyrocketing, that or some 
so, I think know, already, somewhat catastrophic break in in the you know financial system in general. Yeah, I think they're already seeing uh, signs that this is going to get nasty, uh, the central bankers. But I think they're also kind of uh, in a position where they don't want to step back in too soon because th it's so out of whack. the The inflation numbers are so yeah. high that if if they if they step in too soon and they're not able to reduce it, we we get into a situation where real estate numbers are going to get disgustingly bad. Um, to Andy's point where he was saying, I don't think that it's going to get, if they, if they allow inflation to continue to run hot and seven, 8% kind of numbers, uh, yeah, I think it's going to get really nasty, uh, if they can't get it under control. So uh, the thing that I'm the thing that I'm struggling with, I'm curious to hear Andy's uh, point of view on this. The thing that I'm struggling with is just the disparity between the U S and, and the EU. So when I'm looking at the U.S. markets, it seems to me like we're going to go through a, a pretty strong disinflation period here in the first uh, half of the of the coming year. But when I look at Europe, we're not seeing that. And we're not seeing that because the energy situation is so bad. And I think their policies yeah. have been so bad uh, that there are they're still in double digit inflation. The numbers are still going up. It doesn't look like they're getting anything under control. They're extremely late. The the ECB's extremely late in tightening, unlike the Fed. Um, and so, is the U.S. disinflation that's that's likely coming? I th I'm pretty sure in the coming six months, going to assist them in Europe to try to get their prices under control, or is their supply chains so broke and are their policies so broke that they're not going to get any of it under control? Yeah. Despite the, 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 the impairment that you're going to naturally see here in the U S I don't know how to answer that question. It's the thing that I'm kind of chewing on. I, I don't really know how to, uh, because if, if you can't get it under control on a global stage and Europe is, is, like getting into chaos and they're, they're going to have to print to subsidize all of that. Like you get yourself in a snowball situation that unravels that, that none of this gets under control. Right. And that's the thing that I'm toying with that. I, I can't, I don't, I don't have an answer for it's, it's, I'm curious what people think, put it in the chat. I'd love to read what your thoughts are. And Andy, yeah. what do you think? Let's see what you think. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, t I'll take i uh, I'll take my best guess at it. And of course it is only a guess. Um, I do think that, you know, Euro dollar uh, FX is going to be crucial here, um, which will in part, in large part, spring out of, as you said, Preston, you know, Fed policy. If you get uh, continued reductions in the CPI and the PCE coming through, you know, we've got a couple, a couple negative prints, negative in the good sense, right? Lower, uh, lower inflation numbers. If that continues, and the Fed uh, gets a chance to ease its foot off the gas, which it has already in terms of the rate of increases. But if we can stop the rate increases, um, you know, you may see a local top in the dollar here for a while. Dollar could continue to lose ground um, as it has a little bit recently against the euro. Um, that would be hugely helpful on a on a relative basis for uh, you know for inflation in Europe. Now, is that going to solve? Europe's inflation problem? No, as as Preston said, uh, energy is uh, is crucial there. Um, where else could you get relief? You know, maybe uh, if some good news comes out of Ukraine. I'm not expecting that, but uh, 
you know, when I think about how how could this go better uh, for the inflation situation in Europe, that's a that's another possibility. But I definitely have to concede that the inflation picture and the economic picture in Europe looks tough and certainly looks significantly tougher uh, than it does here uh, in Fortress America. With our exorbitant privilege. That's right. Our <laughs> currency, our currency, but your problem, right? Exactly. <laughs> <The thing goes. laughs> um, everyone who's watching on YouTube right now, just a reminder that we will be moving to Twitter spaces after the show. Invite you to come join us there, the at Swan Bitcoin handle. You'll be able to come up on stage and ask these guys some questions. So I do encourage you to hop over there uh, with us at the end of the YouTube segment here. Let's talk about oil, black gold. In Q4, we saw the strategic reserve uh, get drained to its lo lowest level since 1983, uh, down 33% since the Russia invasion. Uh, this is in part why people believe that crude has fallen over 5% this quarter. Now we have reports that China's going to be opening up from its COVID lockdown policies. So, uh, Preston, we'll start with you on this one. Where do you see the price of oil going from here? First, Andy, do you do you buy this China's reopening thing? <laughs> uh, I think, I mean, part partly yes. I think that uh, I think the data. It's like who knows? I mean, you you take yeah. everything with a giant grain of salt. I do think they have to get this engine started started again i think i think if you stall out if the aircraft stalls out for long enough you know you're not going to be able to pull out of the uh the tailspin but but i don't have high confidence in in any you know specific I'm, data i'm not buying it I, and i don't know why it's just kind of gut like it just seems like something is really systemically broken there politically and uh i can't wrap my head around it i've you know, I've listened to a lot of different interviews and trying to find the experts in China to kind of get their point of view. But it just seems like the decisions they're making over there are so strange, um, like the lockdowns, like the Apple facility, the like all of it is just so strange to me. And it seems like they're they're doing something that's that doesn't make sense to a Westerner. Um, and so then like, I, I read these reports on the wall street journal, like, oh, China's going to reopen and it's going to cause a supply or it's going to, it's going to suck the supply out of the oil market, which is going to cause the prices to rip, which it would if they did reopen. Um, but I, I don't know, I, I don't really know how to kind of handle it. I think that that's the really the key point here, because let's say China continues to be cl closed down like it is or like like it's been for the last year, the demand destruction that potentially is going to happen here in the first half of the year is hopefully going to allow oil prices to remain pretty low and affordable for people. Um, but if, if for in fact it is opening up and all of that uh, demand comes back online, like I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what they're going to do with oil prices because it's been a bit of a game of chicken here in the U.S. with the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and how it was used uh, for the year and um, how much it's been drawn down and how much there really is to, you know, in these caverns for people that aren't familiar, a lot of this oil is stored in caverns. And so like knowing how much is actually there is is kind of a little, it's, it's a little tricky. Um, so I... If I was going to bet 
and and then you throw in the whole Europe piece uh, as well, right? Which is just a mess. It's really hard to kind of make a forecast on something like this. Um, I'm I'm very hopeful that um, the prices are going to stay down and that China does not come back online. And I guess they're able to kind of manage this a little bit, but um, I, I I don't put a lot of probabilities on on any of the, <laughs> the whether it's going higher, or staying flat. I think uh, I think it's interesting to look at you know the major industrial commodities uh, and their prices recently. You know, oil is one. Uh, industrial metals like um, you know copper and iron and steel are another. I do see a divergence. I mean, I look at the hopefully these data are right uh, from my Bloomberg sheet here, but you know, one month versus one month ago, and we got the you know the China quote unquote news. I think in the last couple of weeks certainly in the last month you know crude hasn't moved wti hasn't hasn't moved brent hasn't moved um the metals are up you know i'm showing copper's up six percent iron's up almost ten percent steel's up twelve percent so it's a little of a divergence between uh, between oil and the and the industrial metals so maybe maybe that's uh maybe that's an indicator that uh, market participants are uh confused or uh, questioning the narrative uh, just like you are, Preston. I, I just know from the, the negative spread in interest rates, like the, they need to keep these prices down. They cannot let these prices run up again. And, and we can't afford to go back to eight or nine percent inflation. Or I think I think it's just going to be destruction in equity, anything that's equity based uh, here in the U.S., yeah, I mean, we, you know, positioning myself, you know, clients, et cetera, you know, still pretty conservative, still pretty defensive. I mean, I look at the risk return on equities from here, given facts and circumstances, and it kind of looks like assets are priced for a, for the quote unquote soft landing, right? You know, it's like yeah, you, look, yeah. you, you look at the probability distribution and you look at the price on equities and you say, oh, the market thinks that it's more likely than not that we're not going to have a recession. And uh, I don't see that uh, as as particularly likely. Recession's definitely my my base case. And uh, in that scenario, you know, almost no asset uh, looks cheap right now. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you 100%. Uh, to say this is going to be a soft landing is is very laughable for me. Like, there's no way. This is, this is going to be a hard landing. Uh, definitely my base case. So we may be looking at a uh, conditions in which this show was born March 2020. So we see, see some uh, some kind of crazy short term, you know, crash. Is that is that where we're, is that going to mark the bottom? Are we going to drift down along with these you know these Fed ratchets uh, and, and kind of hit? Like it's not really, I wouldn't call it a soft landing. I'd still call it a crash landing, but we're creating like a super long trench as the plane sort of <laughs> glides along the ground. Or is it yeah. going to be like, you know, the side of a mountain? What are we looking at? Typically you get contagion uh, when the central banks throw in the towel and they say, all right, this, we have got, we have got a reset underway here. Um, the zombies have been, enough zombies have been killed. And now let's go ahead and usher in the next the next reflation period. Um, 
and typically what triggers that is something that is is really like really breaks the markets in, in a credit kind of way so um i expect that now it might be this long drawn out it's it's really ugly and and here's what would cause that brady is if they still have these inflationary prints in excess of five percent and things are selling off like crazy through all of that and they're still showing signs that they don't have it under control it's going to be the that latter scenario that you describe where the plane's dragging through and then you have a big giant capitulation um it really comes down to the confidence that they have that they finally slayed the the inflation beast um enough that's what it's that's what's that's what it's going to come down to yeah maybe i'll comment a little bit on uh rather than equities you know prices and what that would look like maybe i'll comment on on bitcoin price um you know the one thing because everybody wants to know you know have we bottomed you know is the bottom behind us um lots of signs of a bottom um you know several major blowups the latest of which you know with ftx i mean it didn't it didn't move btc down by that much right it's a good sign frankly that bitcoin prices has been has been as resilient uh, in the face of that debacle as it has um i will say the one thing we've kind of been missing for a bottom is is real volume high volume um you know in the liquidation that you were referencing in march 2020 uh that that was there was some volume uh, on that one there were there were uh you know there was high volumes on on prior bottoms in bitcoin price so that might be the one sort of missing ingredient for being certain that uh, that we've seen a bottom now having said that i look at the you know the chart and the time to the having and i look at the last cycle and we're kind of at the point when we bottomed in terms of time until the upcoming having um when we bottomed last cycle and i always like to ask uh, people you know when they're when they're talking about further downside risk in bitcoin price i like to ask them Remember back in early 2019, we had dumped, you know, price was in the 3K range or a little bit higher, and we hung out there for a few months. Um, and then we got this uh, this green candle, this like 20 or 25% green candle in price in April of 2019. So question Preston and question Brady, do you remember what the catalyst was for that uh, for that green candle that took us off the bottom? probably all the people shorting it yeah exactly it's a trick it's a trick question the answer is there was no catalyst <laughs> nothing happened that day right just the price went up and uh and uh you never really saw you know you never saw 3k again yeah for like a few hours in march 2020 you know you saw 3800 you saw just under 4k mm -hmm. but it didn't really last oh and by the way if you're hoping and praying for that wick downward that probably means you're holding fiat on an exchange, which I don't especially recommend right now, given the facts and circumstances uh, going on with all the exchanges. So, yeah, I think um, I think that it's impossible to call bottoms. I'm in Preston's camp, which is, you know, the the asymmetry looks severely skewed to the upside uh, in terms of the opportunity on Bitcoin uh, price. So I'm pretty bullish. I'm not going to call a bottom, but uh, but the the risk return looks quite favorable. It's it's extremely difficult to outperform cash 
when uh, central bankers are acting the way that they're acting, which is tightening, uh, tightening credit and sucking monetary units out of the system, it's really hard to outperform cash. Um, so let me give you an example. And this is going back to, to Andy's point of how, how's Bitcoin going to perform in the next six months or a year? When, uh, let's, let's say you're a business, let's say you're sweeping all your free cash flows into Bitcoin, right? And you're going through this economic storm and normally you're profitable. Maybe you have 10% margins after tax and, uh, vendors that you receive inbound payments from start going bust. And they, they call you and they say, sorry, I can't pay you. I don't have the money to pay you. I'm going bankrupt, right? Now, all of a sudden, uh, and let's say that that one vendor is 10% of, of the revenue coming through the door. Um, now you're in a situation where you're, you're at a break even. And now it's, it starts to accelerate. It starts to snowball. So now that business that is normally profitable has to start making decisions. Do we sell our treasury that we're sweeping completely? And I'm, I'm using this as an example just to show people the, the stress points and how it plays out. But for the example, we're assuming this company is sweeping all their free ca cash flows into Bitcoin. This company now has to make a decision. Do we fire employees and reduce our future revenues or do we go into our retained earnings and, and take some of those and start paying our employees so that we don't have to fire anybody? And hopefully in the next three months, six months, year, we get back into the green again because central bankers start reflating the economy and there's more monetary units and, and people aren't going bankrupt. This is the this is the calculus of how more Bitcoin could sell, even though these prices are screaming low relative to a lot of these on-chain metrics and everything that, that people like to say. It's business. Most businesses have counterparties. They have responsibilities. Those bills are denominated in fiat currencies, okay? They're not denominated in Bitcoin, even though we would love every employee to want to be paid in Bitcoin. They don't want to be paid in Bitcoin because their electrical bills and their gas bills and all these other things are still denominated in dollars, euros, whatever. So that's where the selling comes from. The selling comes from people that have to sell it because of their counterparties. Um, and I would just say that that's, that's why you're going to continue to have pressure on Bitcoin as the world from a global standpoint is clawing more and more fiat units out of the system, it's really hard to outperform those fiat units in, in the short term. In yeah. the long term, we all know where this is going um, because they're going to have to add trillions more and they're just going to shove it into people's pockets. They're going to shove it into the bankers, but hell they're, they're shoving it into the bankers pockets right now, whether people know it or not to the tune of like $300 billion a year because of the uh, deferred assets uh, situation. But, um, Anyway, well, let's. What is the deferred asset situation? Since there are certainly people out there that won't know what that means. Yeah, I wish I could explain it to you. It's too convoluted and confusing. No. All right, we'll ask. We'll ask Lynn. <laughs> in short, in short, the uh, the Fed will run a surplus. They take that surplus and they send it to the the Treasury. Recently, because they are they have to incentivize banks to not lend money. Why? Because if these banks lend all of these reserves that they're sitting on, you will see really high inflation. You'll see 15% inflation. You'll see whatever, right? I'd, I'd have to go do the math of like what that would equate to if, they, if these banks weren't being incentivized by the Federal Reserve 
to place their deposits at the Fed to collect these higher interest rates that they're raising the interest rates on. (laughs) So as they did this, and as they have these higher rates that they're paying banks to not lend money, it has put them in a situation where they're not quote unquote profitable in sending the treasury a check. They're, they have a loss and that loss is to the tune of about 300 billion a year. So like, that's a lot of money. That's nearly like half of the defense department's budget. It's that much money and it's all interest. And it's going to all these too big to fail banks. It's going straight onto their balance sheet. And then guess what they're doing with that? They're going out and buying more treasuries so that they can collect more interest and put them on deposit at the Fed so that they can go. So it's insane. It's absolutely insane. This is how the world is run. Andy. Yeah. And they're not kicking it back to their, uh, to their depositors, right. To their customers. Uh, you know, the, oh. the, the interest rate on your <laughs> bank account is still pathetic, severely lagging, you know, the, the move in federal funds rate and, uh, treasuries and, and interest on, uh, reserves and all that. I'm looking at, uh, I'm looking at Fred, uh, the federal reserve, uh, you know, the database basically, showing interest on reserve balances, the rate of 4.4%, you know, pretty good, right? Pretty good, decent rate to, to park your money there. And Preston's spot on. Um, for what risk, if, right? What exactly, risk? for no risk, for no risk. Preston's spot on that if, if that rate wasn't there and they actually lent out the money, you'd get that huge credit multiplier on the base money and you would get ridiculous inflation and that would be disastrous. So yeah, they got to they gotta keep paying keep paying the bankers, uh, to, uh, to prevent that inflation. Here's the crazy part, right? So you have the, uh, SLR. So the SLR is the leverage ratio of like how much the banks have to keep on their books, right? I don't know what the rate is, but we'll just use simple numbers. Let's say it's 10%, right? So they have to keep reserves of 10%. So if, if they're trying to incentivize banks to not lend money, you could just raise it up to whatever most of them are sitting on. Let's say they're all sitting on 15%, right? And the Fed doesn't want the extra 5% to be lent out. So today what they're doing is they're paying that huge interest rate that, that Andy just told you. I'm saying huge, but relative to inflation, it's not that much. But compared to the rest of the free and open market, and I'm using air quotes here, <laughs> um, that 5% adds up to an enormous amount of money. They don't have to pay that if they just raise the SLR to 15%. But they're never going to do that because of the how strong the lobbying is of these banks because they want the SLR to stay low so that they can continue to get the free gravy train and just put it on their balance sheet. Anyway. And I mean, to kind of continue down that line of, of the, you know, just the malincentives in the system, we passed a $1.7 trillion spending bill last week us national debts at 31 trillion dollars mind-boggling right this this profligate spending uh but right now i mean with cpi inflation still you know high um is there i mean is there any basically is there any like faith or hope left that we might get politicians in washington that would be fiscally conservative or champion uh, you know, these like responsible uh, sort of banking policies that Preston's talking about. Is there any hope? Like, is that going to happen at all? Or is there only like one path to sort of restoring 
economic order on a global on a global scale. Yeah, I think it's near zero probability uh, of fiscal rectitude. And uh, two reasons for that. I mean, one is we're just already too far down the path, right? There's there's already too much debt. Uh, You're past the point of no return. You're past the event horizon. You know, pick your uh, favorite analogy there. Um, It's it's too late. And then, yeah, the second is the incentives. I mean, it's pretty it's become pretty clear that uh, politicians elected on two, four and six year cycles uh, get reelected if they deliver the goodies, especially if they deliver more goodies than will fit into their budget. So they uh, so they Mm -hmm. borrow and spend. I mean, I don't I you know, you never say never, but it's like, you know, one percent probability that uh, that that it gets fixed in the next couple of decades. It's just a simple incentive thing for me. Right. Like, what's the incentive for them to not try to vote money into their local districts at this point? And what's their incentive when the the broader population, regardless of political affiliation, is all for it? Is is saying, yeah, send me another check. I know inflation's high. That's why I need the other check. That's yeah. the logic. But from from you know, if you lined up a hundred people, like ninety of them would be saying that tune. Um, 10 of them would be saying, no, that's why your prices are higher. Um, so I think when you just look at the basic incentives and you look at how you know they're looking at these, it, without term limits, right? Like that's, if I was going to define a critical variable of like how maybe they could be incentivized, but the, the mathematics are jacked. Like that's a whole, that's separate. The math doesn't work based on how in debt how indebted we are and and what that looks like. And then the other part of that equation is like their incentive and that there's no term limits uh, are really the two critical reasons why that you're not going to see it happen. And everybody knows that they have a printing press, a money, a monetary printing press, right? And that's what makes these kinds of profligate spending bills and $600 billion defense budgets, et cetera, et cetera, possible and, you know, and fundable. Uh, So if, if we have, you know, a Bitcoin standard, do you think that that would change fundamentally the nature of government to realign those incentives? I, I tweeted this the other day. I think that a lot of the bad outcomes and, and problems uh, with society that are blamed on capitalism are, are you know, misblamed on capitalism. It's actually a result of a fiat monetary system. Uh, and, and we can actually see, you know, maybe amongst other things, uh, a more functional government. What do you think about that? Yeah. One of the things that have, I'm sorry, go ahead, Andy. No, no, I was going to say, I mean, spot on, right? It's a, it's sort of kind of a capitalist market based based system, except for the most important good in the entire economy, (laughs) right? right? The one good that's half of every transaction, which is, uh, which is money. So yeah, it's, it's crony capitalism. It's not uh, true capitalism. Uh, That's just, uh, that's just the way it is. And yeah, it's um, nobody, almost nobody understands this fact um and i don't you know we talk about it we try to educate it uh, educate people about it and yet uh it's it's an uphill uh it's an uphill battle so i don't see a path to full capitalism or truly free markets you know with before the resolution quote unquote of the debt problem so uh i hope i'm wrong i hope uh i hope we figured this out but i but i am not holding my breath yeah (laughs) When you see the general population endorsing caps on the prices of commodities, 
and it's a majority of them that have this opinion, you yeah. know, you're screwed. Screwed <laughs> mm -hmm. because the way you get consumption under control is you got to let the prices run hot. You can't step into that market and cap it. And because I mean, that's based, that's the same thing as printing money and handing it out. You're incentivizing excess consumption when you do that. Now, let's pull the thread on so that it's really understandable when it's a commodity like oil or gas or any of that kind of stuff. It's just really obvious. And you're already seeing people endorsing it on the obvious stuff. Now let's look at the non-obvious stuff like treasuries. When we control the, the, the yield on a treasury, yep. we are doing that exact same thing, which means you're controlling the price of money itself. And when you're controlling the price of money itself, you're then putting a supply, you're putting a cap on prices for everything, literally everything. And so when you look at all these, these net consuming countries, they're all doing that. The net producing countries are saying, we're sick of it. We're sick of it. We're not taking your paper promises anymore. Mm -hmm. All about man, the whole thing. Monetary socialism. All right. Let's wrap up this portion of the show. Gentlemen, I'll see you over on Spaces in just a moment. Those of you listening in Spaces, get some questions ready for these two rock stars. And if you're watching on YouTube, hop over to at SwanBitcoin on your Twitter app and uh, or just look up at the top of your Twitter app if you're already following Swan or Preston or Andy or me. You'll see us because we're all up on stage. All right. See you guys over there. And thank you for joining us for this segment of the show. Do hope to see you over on Twitter Spaces. Signing off YouTube now. Thanks. All right. I see Andy and Preston have hopped over. Hey, everybody. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight. These primetime Swan Signal Live episodes are so much fun. I love doing them at night. Um, thank you for being here. Please do submit a request to pop up on stage to ask uh, Preston and or Andy a question or just give us a take that you have uh, after listening to the episode up to this point. Uh, I'm going to actually kick it off. Uh, I had a follow-up question to what we were just speaking about on YouTube. Um, so monetary socialism, it's basically the, 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 the basis of the global economy, certainly the American economy. Uh, we're giving out money, you know, basically free or very low interest rates, lower interest rates than the rest of the uh, world uh, has access to, to these big banks and companies. Uh, when they fuck up, we, bail them out with some of that, uh, that socialist cash. And we don't think of America as being a socialist country, um, you know, politically speaking, at least, but on an, in an economic, uh, fundamentally from an economic standpoint, uh, you know, the base of the economy, uh, is socialist, uh, monetary socialism for the rich. So something that I have thought about in the past, and I'd love for you guys to shoot this down, but I wonder if it's not a, a bad idea when you're at the end of uh, fiat money, fiat money is dying, and in this particular case, the dollar, of course, would it not make more sense or at least be more fair and more just to start doling out cash straight to the people in the form of UBI uh, instead of holding that privilege uh, just for the richest banks uh, in the country and for bailing out sovereigns around the world? Um, I know this is going to be a controversial idea for a lot of a lot of people who uh, believe in 
you know, capitalism. Uh, but do you think that this is uh, a viable idea or let's just say in theory, a good idea? Um, either, either you guys can jump in and take that. Yeah, I, I think it's inevitable. Um, you know, we look at 2020 as an example, the $1.9 trillion bill post-COVID, you know, really specified for COVID needs and now it's just become the rich enriching themselves. So it's um, very uh, rational to expect more frequent and intense printing bills um, and that will come in the form of more hol- helicopter payments. Thanks, Daniel. Andy, you want to jump in? Yeah, sure. Can you hear me, by the way? Yep. Coming in clear? Okay, good. Yeah, so uh, will would it be more fair to just give the money to the people? Yeah, it would be more fair. I agree with you. Uh, is it good policy? I would not say it's good good policy at this point. I'd rather see uh, I'd rather see uh, a harder money. I'd rather see uh, the dollar and other fiat currencies, uh, you know, kept within a reasonable range rather than just printing more uh, more shrewd bucks. Um, I agree uh, with Maynard that uh, it's more likely to, that we're going to see direct transfers, like we saw with the helicopter money, with the stimmy checks. Um, uh, you know, with COVID. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's probably high time that, that the people got some of the money as opposed to the cantillionaire insiders. Uh, do I think it'll end well? Uh, no, I do not. If I was going to use a framework to kind of go through how to answer that, I would start with... Preston, I'm dying to hear what you think about this. <laughs> Can you hear me, Brady? Brady, are you able to hear Preston? He was uh, speaking. Nope, I'm not. I'll hop off again. All right. So the framework that I use is you just start with a simple yes or no question. And the question is, is the system salvageable? Is the existing system salvageable? And if the answer is no, well, then you got to come up with a way to, to transition it to a new system in the most effective, fair way possible. If you think the system is salvageable, well, then you have to go through austerity. That's pretty much the only way to do it. You can't, you can't print anything. And so I would, I would strongly argue that the system is not salvageable at this point. So that takes you to kind of using a mix of QE and UBI in order to uh, bridge the transition to a new fair system. Everyone on here probably listening believes that some type of sound money, most likely Bitcoin, because you're listening to this, is the the new system that we need to transition to. That's obviously what I think it is. I think it's Bitcoin. Um, so how do you get there? And, and so then it becomes the argument of the speed at which you get there. Some people would argue, well, rip the Band-Aid off and just get to it and you'll you'll minimize the damage to the to the you know least of m- amount of people. And then other people would say, no, the slower you go, the, the more you're able to bridge it and the transition isn't as abrupt and you're not like running into a brick wall through, through as, you, as you move to the new system. I don't know what the right answer is there. It's probably uh, in between both of them where you need to have a little bit of time, but you do need to try to move out as aggressively as possible. 
So when you look at QE, like what does QE bring? Well, QE greases the skids of the overwhelming credit market that exists and how the world functions today. So if you don't do QE, what you're doing is you're basically sucking all the plumbing out of this really complex uh, system that interconnects the entire planet. If you don't do UBI, what you find is all of the all of the liquidity is being provided into the system via QE is not trickling down into the into the lowest portion uh, the transactional the everyday person that's going out there just trying to survive. So you, you really do need to have a mix of both. If I was going to quantify the last decade, I would quantify it as all they focused on was the plumbing via QE until COVID happened. And, and because they were really scared as to like what that was going to mean, they, they finally put some money into, the, into everybody's hands via UBI to try to make sure that nobody was going to starve. Um, I think moving forward, you're going to need a whole lot more UBI for this dying system that I think is unsalvageable, which I think is important to highlight as I say that, because people will, you know, pull that out of context and say, Preston's for a UBI. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm, I'm for austerity and people being responsible. That's what I'm for. Um, but that's not going to work as you're bridging to a new system. But I think that you're going to need more UBI. And I, the reason I think that you're going to need it moving forward is I think I think things have the ability to really get out of control from a social uh, uh, safety and social. And so people will hear that and I'll say, well, that's going to make the prices bid higher. Yep, you're right. It is. But um, if you continue to just do QE, like what are you going to do? Make rates negative 5% and hold, you know, uh, do yield curve control down to ridiculous levels and not push the money in that. Like there's no good solution to any of this, but there needs to be a hybrid of both of those tools as you transition to this new system that is going to bring just uh, justice <laughs> to people who are net producers and not net consumers of society. Oh, you put it so well, Preston. Um, that's exactly what I was thinking too, is during, a, I mean, there's an inevitable transition happening, right? Cause this, this money's dying. It's gone too far down the road as we have discussed. And if you start with the premise that this thing is dying, then you look it back at all of those years, decades, uh, that this money has been given to big banks and rich folks to basically allow them to buy more assets uh, that in just, you know, in increases their wealth, whereas, you know, the bottom 50% even more don't have access to wealth generating assets. Um, it's just completely and fundamentally unfair. It is a monetary form of monetary socialism. And if your currency is dying and you're transitioning to a better money like Bitcoin, it seems to me just to throw some pittance <laughs> to the plebs. Uh, out there who have been getting screwed over by this fiat monetary system for so long so that they can at least, you know, like maintain uh, their the basic needs and hopefully be able to buy a little bit of Bitcoin for the new world they're heading into. Uh, Andy, did you have a follow-up? No, I couldn't have said it better than uh, Preston said it. And you said it. Yeah. Uh, nacho maximalism. I, too, am a nacho maximalist. What's going on? What's your question? Hey, uh, 
So it's kind of a add on to something y'all were talking about in uh, the YouTube part of the stream, which is uh, the real estate market. Um, do y'all have any ideas on um, possibly what what is going to happen through with commercial real estate, considering like kind of change in preferences in the market post COVID, the average uh, length of lease being eight years, 2024 being halfway through that. Um, and Raytheon, you know, even companies like Raytheon decreasing their footprint by like 25 percent. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in on that one. And I will say that commercial real estate is one of the scariest asset classes I can think of. Uh, I might be hard pressed to think of, of an asset that I'd be uh, more scared about owning right now. Um, I've seen it anecdotally and statistically, you know, that uh, uh, leasing companies, landlords have been, you know, trying to hold on to tenants. Um, they're doing everything they can to keep people in their leases, keep companies, you know, in their buildings, and they're struggling to do it. There's no doubt that despite the fact that, uh, you know, people are, quote unquote, going back to work and bosses are pushing harder to get people back into the office, there's no doubt that a certain percentage of people are just going to be either primarily working from home or working from home you know, a couple of days a week. And, um, and these, you know, real estate in general is the world's most levered asset class by a mile. And, uh, and commercial real estate, you know, as much or more as, uh, as residential. So there's all these capital structures that are stuffed to the gills with debt in the commercial real estate space. You know, they got multiple tranches of debt. They got their, their first lane and the second lane and a, and a mezzanine piece. And then, you know, the equity sits below this, uh, this crushing burden of, uh, of liabilities ahead of it. And yeah, I think commercial real estate has not uh, has not repriced probably nearly to the level that it's uh, that it's likely to get to. Caveat, of course, that you know not all commercial real estate is equal. You know, warehouses are different than prime office buildings. Uh, but um, but yeah, I think it's a pretty scary sector myself. Thanks. Yeah, I, I was. Do you think that that could be a possible catalyst? Uh, although uh, humdrum, though it may be, if if you consider you know Japan, uh, Japanese bonds blowing up or or European bonds blowing up um, to a Fed pivot or or uh, you know essentially just more QE to kind of fix that. Yeah, I mean there is you know there's always one vector which is the banks, right? And the banks have exposure to all sectors of the economy, but uh, commercial real estate is definitely one place where they have significant exposure. And the banks appear to be in much better uh, shape than they were in the global financial price crisis because the leverage ratios are so much lower now. Um, nevertheless, uh, it is a, it's a risk to, uh, to the banking system. It's a risk to the economy overall. It's a risk to, everybody who owns a piece of this stuff. Um, so I, I don't, I don't look at it as like a real big systemic threat to the financial system necessarily, but I do look at it as among the uh, bigger cases of an asset where there, there is real risk and there could be capital destruction and 
that along with capital destruction and other assets uh, could filter through to the rest of the economy for sure. Is it systemic Preston? Is commercial real estate uh, systemic or just another asset? No, I think I, I agree with everything you just said. I don't have really any other comments beyond that. Um, you know, if they step in, you you had mentioned what if what if they step in and they're doing more QE, you know, with the negative spread that you have in versus with, with interest rates relative to inflation. I know how I would be looking at that if they stepped in here shortly and they weren't able to get inflation under control. I'd be saying this spread, this negative spread is only getting worse, which means these prices <laughs> need to go lower and only kind of makes the issue worse. Um, yeah, I, and I think that the the shift in work from home is dramatic, absolutely dramatic. Like maybe maybe more dramatic than than we even realize right now. Yeah, I was about to ask if people actually work in offices still, um, but I guess that's still a thing for a while longer. <laughs> you can see, you can see the big banks like. Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan insisting people are working in the office. And I feel like that's uh, rather telling that that's their position. <laughs> yeah, right. Fully I expected. To, I was jumping at the right time here, Brady. Uh, great to see you, President. Bobby, of course, Andy. what's up, man? Uh, well, uh, hey. One sec. Uh, Dr. Daniel, we're going to be coming to oh, you next. All right. Go ahead, Bobby. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, just. Um, aside from what we just found out the last couple of years, just with the lockdowns in general, and you're watching what goes on in these cities, uh, usually um, run by the left side. Everything gets locked down. Um, you see riots. You see brick-and-mortar stores just being torn down for one thing. Um, in 2008, I, I didn't know what you guys thought about the technology side of things. In 2008, we, you could have had – we didn't have Zoom back then. And if you had bought Zoom a few years ago, you're do, you were doing quite well for a while. Um what were your what were your guys thoughts on just from the technology standpoint of commercial real estate? Because I, I understand from a, a different angle of the big cities versus smaller ones, but man, there's no way in hell. I, I mean, I'd be investing anything in some of these large cities right now. So from a technology side, how how is that changing the world to you? Well, I think that it's it's obvious that what it brings and what it's turning into is retention of talent. So if you have somebody who's who's a top performer, they're going to demand that they work from the house and the company is going to do whatever they can to try to keep that person. So it, it really kind of turns into this competition uh, because of the shortage of work and you're getting a shortage of talent in, in specific key areas. Um, Businesses are having to to implement these work from home policies because they they need to be competitive uh, with retaining talent. I am bullish on like co working spaces or like a obviously not WeWork but <laughs> WeWork type spaces. I'm sitting in one right now, so I do have a little office uh, outside of my house. So I work probably half the time here, half the time at home. Um, so it is nice to have a space to work outside of the home for sure. And there's still a need for that. And, you know, I, I can focus here hundred percent when I'm at home, 
there's, you know, even if my kids are at school, there's, you know, things, the dog wants out or, you know, you walk by the dishes and you're like, oh, there's, there's distractions. Uh, so I do see, uh, a, you know, maybe a place for commercial real estate um, to, for people to work in offices. It'll just be like people from 500 different companies or something like that. Pubby, Pubby, how far is your commute to the toxic happy hour? <laughs> Not too far, right? Yeah. Hey, look, man, I, I keep a tight schedule. Um, like, like Preston, man, prior military, we get up early. Can't believe I'm up to sleep, but when when I see you guys on stage, I'm jumping in. Uh, listen, so I'm, I'm up by usually four thirty, uh, five. Catch up on on my Twitter at work by six, out by one thirty. Toxic happier starts at two, go to four, then boom, home, running it at all. And I'll tell you something else. Check this out with technology. How we have come full circle. I remember President probably the same age. Well, probably a little bit younger. Man, you went to your guidance counselor. Guess what, son? You're going to college. Your parents, you're going to college. It's come full circle. And now everything they told you, everything they missed out upon was what? Man, learn a trade, learn a skill. Because what they didn't count on was technology was going to tell you. Everyone, all my friends that went and they became an accountant. Guess what? Boom. Internet, they can ship those the offshore they get done for $5, $10, and it comes back. Um, it, it, it's been an interesting ride. I, I don't even know where we go from here, but I would say learn to trade. If, if you got any children, learn to trade. Yeah. Was that learn talk. a trade or learn to trade? Well, you don't have to trade Bitcoin. You just buy and hold that. <laughs> some learn, learn to a trade, trade. your trade. <laughs> Yeah, look, there's no doubt that there's a shortage of. Um, <laughs> All right, uh, Andy, did you hop on to say something, or should we go to the next? No, question? I, I didn't. I agree. I, I agree completely with Pubby, which is, you know, the percent, this, this filtering system, this credentialing system, you know, this, it's really a, a signaling system, right? You, uh, that that is that is higher education, is, uh, is slowly uh you know slowly weakening slowly fraying at the uh, at the edges but it's uh, it's accelerated and i do think that that this decade is really going to blow a pretty sizable hole in the side of uh, of higher education and rightly so because you know that whole system in general is is uh, pretty captured and pretty corrupt uh, you've seen it in the numbers in terms of the ratio of administrators versus uh, actual teachers and professors in the system. You've seen it in terms of, you know, how they've treated, uh, well, how they've treated political issues and failed to balance, you know, liberal versus conservative uh, values. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a relatively, it's one of the corrupt institutions uh, in the world today. And uh, yeah, tech is finally going to, going to blow a hole in it. And I'm totally here for it. I'm so ready for that to happen. Amen. Yeah, look, what well, I'm going to just have, have some All right. Thank you so much for your patience, Dr. Daniel. You're oh, up. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. No. Um, you know, the, the conversation last few last few minutes has really made me um, want to highlight a point about incentive structures. You know, incentive structures matter. And Are you still there? You or can I not hear you? Yeah. You got me? Yeah, we got it. We got him, Brady. Yeah. So, <laughs> all right. You know, 
incentive structure. All right, go ahead. I'm going to pop off and come back in. Yeah, incentive structures matter. So, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, using commercial real estate as an example. You know, I mean, we have to remember that the politicians, they all have commercial real estate. They've got residential real estate. They've got stock in the stock markets. Um, I think it would be unrealistic um, to expect them to go down for long. Um, they want to keep their bags full. Um, and that's that's one consideration. And they've got so many financial tools at their disposal at the moment that um, they can easily keep these bags afloat, you know, these market caps afloat. So even if there is some brief deflationary episodes, um, I don't expect them to stay down for long. Um, you know, another interesting illustration there about incentive structures, um, we talk about, um, you know, a shift away from, uh, you know, tertiary high-level education um, back to more, you know, labour-style uh, professions that can't be um, globally delegated. Um, and I would certainly agree with that. And back again, we look at incentive structures. I mean, Saifedean Amos um, saying the other day, you know, we're currently incentivized. you know, the, the best profession to get into at the moment in the fiat world is politics. <laughs> you know, something bureaucratic and red tape, uh, you know, inefficient stuff. But um, I think, yeah, we're certainly going to see a shift away from that and, and Bitcoin will propel it. And, um, but, you know, once again, in these higher level uh, tertiary studies, I think there will still be a demand for licensed trades. I mean, look, I'm in a niche industry. I am a dentist. It's one of the least professions to become obsolete um, and superseded through, you know, deflationary technology. But I think there will still be a demand for that. Um, you know, these probably more high, high risky jobs. But, um, yeah, I want to talk about that. And just, just, I just want to highlight that and illustrate that while we're on the topic. And um, lastly, I'd just like to say, Preston, my man, I'm loving you. I'm, I'm loving all the content that you're putting out there, my big brother. Loving the, loving the energy you bring into the table. And, um, yeah, thank you so much, my big brother. Really appreciate it, my man. Hey, thanks. I appreciate that. Too kind. I wish we had some Mark Moss and like fourth turning type of conversation to here because we are we're going into uncharted waters, in my opinion. And this is what's going to be fascinating is this race between technology um, that will um, basically obviate most of the jobs we need to do and this population. And I'm not going to get all conspiratorial about why there could be a race to de depopulize an entire world. But here's the thing. Um, it's amazing the, the, the number of jobs we've taken on in our life that most people don't realize. Um, guess what? When I go to the airport now, I check my own bags. I print my own ticket. All right. If you want to go and have a, God forbid, a cheeseburger at McDonald's, you, you put your own order in, you pick it up. It's amazing how quickly technology is outpacing the jobs. Um, and, and it reminds me of a quote from Gandhi is, you know, I, we don't need mass production. We need production by the masses. I don't know how you um, really find this equilibrium. It could get ugly here for a while. Yeah, and let's pull it back to, you know, why Bitcoin. Um, there's this, we live in this strange time where, as you said, you know, 
accelerate well rapid rapid deflation right because taking cost out of the system taking labor out of the economy that's extremely deflationary that's the jeff booth stuff and uh on the opposite side resource scarcity you know bad demographics deglobalization you know all these things that are that are inflationary so like which you know which factor wins um i'm still in the inflationary camp medium term you know possibly back to deflation after the resolution of the monetary system but regardless of the path and it'll probably be a rocky one you know i'm happy to own a significant part of my net worth hold it outside the system uh outside of this uh fiat system that's uh that's linked to an inextricable tied to greater and greater instability in the in the global economic and geopolitical system so whichever way this goes uh probably probably want to have some bitcoin yeah look that that makes sense um maybe i've i've jumped the gun a little bit and have too much of my net worth now in bitcoin i'm moving a lot of my u.s dollar denominated assets i've sold down certain u.s dollar denominated assets and, and moved into bitcoin um but um yeah i mean guys let's remember what does Dejiji say? Gradually, then suddenly. We think about Metcalf's law. Let's not just you know, let's not let's not just use the word Metcalf's law. Let's use the word positive Metcalf's law, because we've got negative Metcalf's law too. Okay, now Bitcoin at the moment, we've got the base layer, and we've got all these other systems that are being built on top of it. it they're all pot, They're all in their own right acting in a positive Metcalf's law manner. Now, if you overlap them with each other despite our brain and despite the tendency our brain tends to think this is not a linear phenomenon this is an exponential if not a hyper exponential phenomenon so um you know certainly allocating some uh, portion of your uh, net worth in the new world and it's fun you know it's it feels good to be in the new world as well you know we get to hang out with each other guys you know there's a there's a, an infectious and contagious degree of optimism and positivity and excitement about the future. Um, it's a it's a fun place to be, and it's an it's an honour. You know, I guess let's take the opportunity to be grateful that we're living in a time where we've never seen an asset class of this nature before. And um, what an honour! I mean, it makes sense. Everything else has been digitised. Why wouldn't the most important economic storage medium, i.e., money? Um, be created in a digital, a better and digital version. Um, so yeah, once again, it's just well, you know, it's very exciting and um, gives us hope. Yeah, I will echo everything that you just said there, man. Uh, it is an infectiously optimistic place to be in a very scary world full of plenty of reasons to be nihilistic. Um, so I, we we definitely had that vibe. Uh, Pacific Bitcoin, you know, what was it? A couple months ago, almost a couple months ago now, um, right in the wake of the FTX collapse. And in our particular, like in the crypto industry, I'm not going to say our industry because we're the Bitcoin industry, but in the crypto industry, that was that was dark days. And of course, it's, you know, uh, bleeds over and to Bitcoin and, re- and, released and impacts Bitcoin. Uh, but none of us were really, really worried about that at all. Um, in fact, it was kind of a bullish thing well, in the long run for Bitcoin. Um, but yeah, it, it's a, it's a beautiful, uh, you know, network to be a part of, 
And one thing I've also been thinking about is just the value of the Bitcoiner network itself, like knowing other Bitcoiners and being early to, you know, relatively early to adopting this thing. Uh, and just think about the value of that network. It's extremely valuable now to be a part of it. But imagine the value of that network in 10, 20, 30 years as this asset class, you know, just eats the world. Um, then, or this asset, this asset, not class, but this asset eats the world. Um, you, we will we'll have an incredible, incredibly powerful network of people who have convened around this sense of optimism and will be carrying it forward. Um, so it, it's a, it's both a, an incredible privilege to be here now as, as part of Bitcoin and the Bitcoiner network, but also a massive responsibility because if this thing plays out like we think it will, then we will have an incredible amount of power uh, and responsibility to make good decisions with our wealth and out allocate it properly uh, Etc. So I think the Bitcoiner network, uh, 10, 20, 30 years from now, is going to be incredibly powerful. Uh, and it's just uh, it's kind of mind-boggling mind to think about. Um, Mr. Callahan, you have your hand up. Yeah, no, I, um, I just love that those recent comments. I kind of wanted to put it back to the fourth turning, what Puppy was talking about earlier. Um, I, I just really think that, you know, Gallup does this poll since the late 70s and it just asked a bunch of average americans quote unquote you know what's their confidence in major u.s institutions and this year it's at an all-time low it's at only 27 percent of u.s adults said they have quite a lot of confidence across u.s institutions i think over the last couple of years they've really shot themselves in the foot in terms of their credibility really just throw a dart at the board with institutions um pretty much all of them uh, really failed at their jobs, in my opinion, over the last couple of years. And so you couple the fourth turning with another book, The Sovereign Individual, and how technology is empowering the individual. It's like the work from home conversation we were just having. Um, you look at the demographics and it just doesn't make sense. Like you have an aging demographics with med medical and pension costs are going up. And at the current projections, the math just doesn't make sense. Um, so how are they going to pay for that? They're going to either print money or they're going to increase taxes. And who's going to take the brunt of those taxes? It's the youth. It's, it's, it, they're going to try to raise the income tax. And if you're young, you're already looking at your paycheck and you're wondering, why am I paying all of this to Social Security? And if you know anything about Social Security, it's maybe the giant Ponzi scheme in the world. And well, one of them. <laughs> and so the young people who are educated, they're like, why am I paying these taxes? And so work from home allows them to be mobile, more geographically mobile. And so if, if the government tries to put excessive taxes on them, they can vote with their feet and they can leave. And so rising excessive taxes on the youth to pay for this Ponzi scheme that doesn't make sense anymore, it's not going to work if they just keep increasing the taxes. And so the same thing with Bitcoin, it's this empowering technology that empowers an individual to not only leave if they're trying to tax the shit out of them, but also they can take their wealth with them across borders. And so you're seeing those two books. Those two books should be a must-read for everybody. I'm sure a lot of people in this room have read them, but The Sovereign Individual and The Fourth Turning, I mean, it's really, it's about exactly what we're experiencing today, which is the degradation of trusts and institutions and the rise of the individual that's empowered by technologies like Bitcoin, like Zoom, uh, these ones that it doesn't really matter. You can live and work from anywhere in the world. 
And so um, I think it's an exciting time. It can be really optimistic. It's going to be really tumultuous. But at the same time, it needs to happen. It needs to happen. And it's, 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 when, it's something the youth can look at and be hopeful about. And Bitcoin's a big part of that. Well said, Sam. Valerie, it's great hey, to see up? you up here. Yeah, thanks, Brady. Thanks, you guys, for being here. Thanks, everybody, for all that y'all are doing here with uh, the community and education and inspiration. I kind of, I wanted to kind of echo back, go back to the, you know, the youth component right now. And this, this obviously, Bitcoin is is hope. Bitcoin is, you know, it's it's optimism on steroids for those of us who get it. And we're the lucky ones right now, right? And I think about our younger generations right now who are, you know, uh, you know, they're, they're mentally flabby because of COVID, because of social media, because of the way that technology is taking over so many things. And I feel like, you know, I've been working with some people and they're really struggling with their kids, you know, kind of this failure to launch and, um, I don't know if any of you guys saw that movie with Matthew McConaughey, but it's really about they're they're not stepping into the world feeling confident and feeling like there's something in it for them because of you know obviously this financial system is so screwed up. Um, but like the the just I was talking to a friend today and he was just like I was starting to learn to write code and this chatbot is writing the code for me, so now I don't even need to go learn that. And obviously even as an artist and a musician, you know, we've got these great tools that are starting to make art and they're starting to even make music for us. So it's like, how do we, how do we help the young people, you know, get that resiliency that they're going to need to move forward in the world? And it's like, Bitcoin is obviously this great tool, but, you know, we've still got a lot more to do to help, you know, the younger generation feel like they're, they've got the hope for this future. And I'd just be curious what any of y'all, especially those of you who've got kids, Preston, I see your hands up. So yeah, I'd really love, I'd love to hear this because I'm struggling with my kids with this. And uh, I think we've got a crisis of apathy also going on with the young kids. So thank you guys for letting me talk. So uh, for people that have read Jeff Booth's book, he provides the the uh, example of folding the piece of paper 50 times and you know, how, how thick would the, would the object be after you folded it 50 times and people grossly underestimate uh, how large that object would be, which is from the surface of the earth to the sun itself and from fold, you know, 49 to fold 50, you're going half that distance from, from the earth to, uh, to the sun. And so the folds at the end are massive. They are moving massive amounts of space. And when we look at where we're at right now in a, in an economic sense, and when you're not allowing true deflation, that's, that's due to technology growth. We were talking, Pubby was talking earlier about how he goes into a uh, into like a fast food chain and he's the one ordering or he's checking out at Target and he's the one checking himself out. All of those things are possible because of technology. All of those things have sucked jobs out of the market. 
all of those things have consolidated enterprise into the hands of a few equity holders. And what I think the, the younger generation right now, the reason why they're, they're kind of looking at the world the way they are is because it's hopeless for them. It's hopeless to compete against a target. It's hopeless to compete against, you name it, a multi-billion dollar enterprise that's about to buy out their small cap company that they were going to work for. Um, and they're getting a pittance of a salary that's just enough to keep them there because they, there's no other opportunities for them to start their own business and compete. And so we're on fold whatever, right? We're on fold 45, and we're moving at such large leaps and bounds that they look at the world today and they're saying, well, that's kind of pointless to step into that because I already know there's no way I can, I can pull that off because my buddy whatever tried to do it and they, they failed on day three. And in, in, in a world where you manipulate the cost of capital for as long as you manipulate it um, and, and you manipulate these, the, the economy and you never let those deflationary forces actually take hold, this is what you see taking place. So it should make sense that we see this. That doesn't make it right. But hopefully, as, as people can understand why it's happening, they can have more empathy for that generation and what they're dealing with. Yeah, I agree. It, it, it's happening, but it's like we're, as, as the adults here in the room, kind of, we, we're going to be dealing with quite a shit show, you know, going forward, I think, on a mental health crisis level. Um, and, you know, these kids that are feeling like, they can't even get on the phone or go out and see people because they're so conditioned to do the social media and how they communicate. And so it's like the technology is a gift, obviously, on so many levels. And it's, you know, because it's been uh, not as mindfully used, right? It's unfortunately having these side effects of, of, of how the kids are communicating or not communicating and their fears and how they're you know, just this, again, this apathy of like, well, why bother, you know? And so this is, this is going to be a big issue I, I see. And I see it just like, it's, it's bubbling and it's going to be coming to the surface. And so I would love for all of us to kind of gather and understand, like, how can we support the younger generations, you know, and give them some more tools of empowerment during this transition, you know, spiritually and uh, mentally, and of course, financially with Bitcoin. So I'd love to, yeah. yeah, I'd just love to hear like how <laughs> let's help these young people with, with some other real life tools. You know, it's a whole new paradigm that is going to be happening. You know, none mm -hmm. of us have seen it. Right. But uh, it, it's, it's just something that is on my mind 24 seven, you know? Yeah. Like Same with me, Valerie. It's on my mind a lot. I have two kids. So, of course, I think about the future a lot. I did before they were born, too, but I think about it now in a much different way um, with, with you know, them sort of at the center of that. And we are heading headlong into a very, very weird world. We're, we're already there, but as Preston was talking about with Jeff's example, it's hard for us to understand exponentials. And that metaphor does give us, uh, you know, maybe a little bit more of an understanding but this has been going on since 10,000 years ago, like, well, even longer. But, I mean, we can start 10,000 years ago with the agrarian revolution. It was all tech, you know, technology-based. And you, you know, march forth to 
the Industrial Revolution, the Information Age, and everything's just accelerating to the point where these exponentials, these doublings are happening uh, within generations, uh, then two or three or four or five times within a generation until the point eventually, we're not that far away now, where it's happening so fast that we reach this point called the singularity, uh, as Ray Kurzweil has called it and many others, um, this technological singularity where we just cannot understand with our current context what you know uh, in human brains what is on the other side we're seeing it the ai is happening now you know dolly sucked a year ago it's making beautiful art now and, and mid-journey making beautiful art now um next year it's going to be you know perfectly realistic videos um you know Ch chat gpt is writing code and i mean this is just kind of the first viable version of it that's really coming out now next year it's going to be able to do so much more and you know all kinds of professions will be automated uh, eventually. I won't have to go to a lawyer. I'll just go to ChatGPT and have them write up the legal documents I need and submit them to the court, you know, et cetera. And this is going to be happening so fast, and it's a scary, scary thing for everyone, but especially for our kids. And I, I think that all you can really do is just instill human values. And in a future where we have this technological singularity, we will hopefully – be left to our, you know, to our own ends by, by the AIs who are going to be automating so much of our life to be humans with each other and go back to these sort of pre-technological roots where we're just doing things uh, to spiritually and, uh, you know, satisfy ourselves uh, and one another. So um, that's, that's, I think, is the ticket is just deep, true humanity. And that's what we need to instill in the kids now to help them survive this very strange world. I, I just have a real quick comment on, on Brady's point, which I completely agree with. In leadership, there's really two ways to lead. You can lead through inspiration or you can lead through fear. When you, It's difficult to lead through inspiration because you have to be the example that you're wanting the people that, that you're trying to inspire to be like. And so all of your flaws will express themselves if you know the the deeper the flaw, the the more it's going to be expressed by or that your followers are, are going to see. Leading through fear is a, is a non-starter because it's it's short-term in nature. You might get the reaction out of them once, uh, you might get it for a month, you might get it for a year, but eventually they're going to lose all faith because they know how that that they're being led through fear, by you scaring them or threatening them or whatever. And so when you look around at parenting and, and your kids. You have to you have to have that balance where you're still able to inspire them, but you have to lead by example. You want them on their phone less? Well, you got to be on your phone less. You got to demonstrate the example to them through inspiration. Yeah, I totally resonate with that, Preston. And uh, you know, I think we're all on this like journey as Bitcoiners, as we become, you know, more consciously aware of the future and the possibilities of like, wow, how do I draw my best self forward on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, with myself, with my family, with my community? Um, you know, it, it's definitely been this, you know, Bitcoin does change us. And I think it's so powerful. And I think, Brady, I don't know if I've said this to you when we were at the conference, or I, I know I say this to a lot of people, but like, 
I really feel like we are, you remember in the Indiana Jones movie with the big boulder and it's like chasing him down and he's like, holy shit, I got to get out of this cave or wherever he was. Like, I feel like the CBDCs and all of this, you know, more centralization of control because of the technology that's available is, is that big boulder. And us as Bitcoiners, it's like, we need to like outrun it and get ahead of it with everybody, especially our family, so that we're not having the default of like, yeah, okay, cool. I'll just take those stimmy checks or I, it's okay if the government controls all of, um, of my life because, you know, it's okay. Now I have free time because all the AIs do everything. And so, so it's that, that delicate dance, you know, between being, you know, outrunning the boulder and also just understanding that like this cycle, we've never seen it ever in our lifetimes, you know, or in any lifetime for that matter of any generation. So, you know, instilling the values, being the example, you know, of those values for ourselves and for each other, you know, I think, is, is so huge. And I just, I, I just have to tell you guys, like being a Bitcoiner has changed my life. And each of you who gets up each day and goes out and uses your voices and takes your time and it shares this, this wonderful tool and helps teach. I mean, you inspire me by your examples. And so I just want to acknowledge you all, everybody who's on the stage, people in the audience. I see so many of you and I just, I really, really, really admire you, and I appreciate that that you call me forward to be a bet, the best version of myself. So I just, I just want to say thanks to all y'all. Love you, love you, Valerie. Love you too, sweetie. Thank you guys totally so much. I'll that. step down so other people can get back up. But yeah, aloha. All right, thank you. Okay, you know. sorry, real quick, puppy. We're we're getting close to the end of our time here. Um, so pub. You go ahead and give us your take, and then let's take one last question from the Simplest Bitcoin book. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, uh, and everyone on stage here, and this is a beautiful part about Bitcoin, um, everyone that you meet here, um, they bring something to the table. Um, their knowledge of history, uh, their knowledge of cooking fantastic steaks, everything that goes into a good life. And I'm half joking, but I'll tell you this. At the end of the Roman Empire... I'm sure there were small gatherings like this, but sometimes the the system is so overwhelmingly um, heavy that you just can't you can't lift it. And when it comes to what will happen at the end here, it, that's great. It's easy for us to say, yeah, just go out, um, go buy a plot of land and build your own farm. Well, guess what? When that supply chain breaks down in this system that's controlled by computers, man, there's no old school accounting. There's no old school ways of learning how to farm. There's no support system. It's not easy. You can, you can see it happening. I hope it doesn't. I hope we can slowly transition from a place of moving. We were talking earlier, move from those large cities, get it out to a smaller town from there. Reach out to your Bitcoin community, reach out to those people, those crazy like uh, Hoddle Tarantula, reach out to him, man. That did a run a miner in the middle of the forest for you. Reach out, but slowly you got to have these small communities if you're going to survive. And I, I mean, I wish I had a, I, w- I wish I was more optimistic, but every month, every year this goes along, 
man, I'm just seeing this system just get tighter and tighter. And when it unwinds, it's going to get ugly. Be prepared. You don't have to psych yourself out too much about it, but be prepared. Uh, hey, on, Bitcoin book. Oh, go ahead. On Andy. an optimistic note, uh, I'm about to take the first vacation I've taken since COVID. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. It's important to have things to, to look forward to. Anybody got anything positive? <laughs> we're going we're gonna to make it, Andy. We're going to make it. <laughs> we're going to make it. We're going to make it. Wag me. <laughs> All right, let's go for our last question and call it a wrap. Uh, Simplest Bitcoin book. Hey, thank you so much. Um, mine's not really a question. It's just a couple of comments based on uh, Valerie's question and then actually Pubby's comment. On Pubby's comment, I just want to remind us all to buy the books. I've started buying literally the homesteading books, the permaculture books, all the good books, because, you know, the internet does go down at some point or even in the region you are shit out of luck if you don't know those skills so all the good stuff the cob building ovens i mean yeah it's all it's all there just have the books on your bookshelf and then valerie just really hearing you and you know i've got two kids and um i was pretty lucky because mine just you know they're just old enough that they, they didn't grow up on online but um and this might sound cliche but i just want to say it and especially to anybody listening who's got like younger kids where this is easier to implement is just make sure to get out to nature with them like at least one day a week or even half a day a week without any devices because it's phenomenal how much that actually impacts them. And I see it in my kids just even, you know, through the years when they started getting devices later on and we just kept doing that. And like now as young adults, and yes, they have a lot of the malaise, but they also have a lot of inspiration, but they don't have malaise. They, they have um, concern because they see what, what's going on, that they're pretty aware. But they also have a lot of their own inspiration still, and I really put that down to just like time and nature. There's literally nothing, nothing that beats that to keep you connected to yourself and to, to like whatever version of God or spirit or energy you, you feel it's there you know and and to your creativity as well like when they're out there and there's only sticks and stones and grass and leaves to play with that makes such a huge difference to keep them because because they're going to need that we're going to we're going to all need that to balance out the tech which yeah um and lastly for the kids too any this is also if they're older kids um how important this is for many years, and I'm actually going to be diving back into it real shortly, but I, I worked with um, communication skills and nonviolent communication and empathy skills particularly. And for kids, one of the most important things that you can give them is to just listen and don't advise, don't talk back, don't ask questions. When they start talking, just let them talk for a while and, and let them like get everything off their chest before you start giving your opinion or your advice or asking them questions and that's just another way for the kids and I think more than ever in the world today that's needed for these kids to to like have a place a safe place in the world and you're saying safe place in, in Bitcoin land sometimes isn't but you know what I mean a place where they can just be heard and then and then you can offer them advice or ask them if they want your ideas or whatever um I just feel like that's really important as well to help them through what's coming because they're going to need it. They're going to need to just get shit off their chest. 
without being disturbed or distracted. Okay, that's all I got. So Thank good. you, guys. Yeah. So right good. I've, I've got to say, I love where this conversation went. Um, very important stuff. Uh, talking about, going from talking about kind of in the weeds, nerdy macro stuff, uh, and here's where we end up. I think it's uh, it's a beautiful thing, and, and it's a testament to the values and qualities of this community. Um, so I agree completely with, with Valerie and, and with Simplest Bitcoin book. And, um, you know, what I was saying earlier is just the most important thing now is to teach your kids how to be humans. And that will be the unique, if you want to put it this way, take it back to nerdy macro speak, the unique value proposition of, uh, of the world is in the future will be that they're human. Uh, so embrace that, encourage that. And, uh, I think this is a wonderful place to end up in this conversation. Preston, uh, do you have any closing comments? No closing comments. I agree with everything you just said. Um, I, I'm just always thrilled to know that, that I'm in this community when conversations like this one that just happen, you know, you're in the right spot, right? Um, and, and that's an intangible, like we like to talk about all the quantitative stuff, but from a qualitative standpoint, uh, you know, you're in the right room when you're, when you're around people that are talking about these types of things. Mr. Edstrom. That's it. That's it. The best thing about Bitcoin is the people love you. Thank you all. Oh, this is the perfect send off. Thank you so much, everybody for uh, making this last episode of my podcasting career. I started with Citizen Bitcoin. And if you're curious about going back in time and listening to some classics, like the first podcast with Breed Love, I think it was the second one with Andy. Um, it was like the second one with Gigi. Uh, there's a bunch of like early, early uh, podcasts where these guys who you know and love today uh, are really just kind of getting into the Bitcoin community and making a name for themselves. That's at citizenbitcoin.world or just search Citizen Bitcoin in your podcast app. Um, and uh, and Swansea Goliath will continue to live on in 2023 in the capable hands of Sam Callahan up here on the stage. Uh, if you are not following Sam yet, please click on his picture of himself in the Barbara Seville suit uh, and, uh, and, and give him a follow. Uh, he does amazing work. He writes all of our macro analysis and Bitcoin analysis. Uh, for Swan, uh, just a massive up and coming bright mind. Uh, he'll be taking over the show next year. So follow him now. Uh, get in early on Sam Callahan. That's it for tonight, everyone. Thank you. Thanks to Preston and Andy for joining us. On behalf of the Swan team, thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Swan Signal podcast. It is fun to join us live on YouTube. Search up Swan Bitcoin, subscribe, and turn on those notifications. We publish a lot of other great Bitcoin content there as well. And you can also listen live on Twitter Spaces. Follow the handle Swan Bitcoin. Check out Swan for easy recurring savings plans, concierge services for businesses and high net worth individuals, and for financial advisors, Swan Advisor Services helps financial advisors add Bitcoin to clients' portfolios and manage those accounts. Swan Signal is a production of Swan Bitcoin at swanbitcoin.com.